Welcome back to Medic Minutes, the BCHS pre-hustle podcast for paramedics. I'm Gordon Meineker, your primary... I'm... Having a stroke. (laughs) (laughs) In today's episode... (laughs) I'm Gordon Meineker, a primary care paramedic and UBC medical student, and today I'm co-hosting with Kayla Richardson, a colleague at UBC and a respiratory therapist. Hi, Gord. Today, our guest is Kevin Lambert. Kevin is a paramedic practice educator here on the island, specifically in Nanaimo, and he's going to be talking to us a little bit about stroke care. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Yeah, thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. Today, we'll be discussing stroke care. More specifically, we'll be going over the basic pathophysiology of stroke and its mechanisms, the clinical picture, including patient assessment and differentiating stroke mimics, And we'll also be talking about treatment for stroke, particularly in the pre-hospital setting. Should be a great show today. Let's dive right in, gentlemen. Uh, Kevin, get it started for us. What is a stroke and what does BCHS kind of define as a stroke? Uh, Sure. I mean, a stroke is simply just a lack of perfusion to the brain at its simplest form. So I think BCHS uh, follows that and any, anything, any insult to the brain that stops blood flow or interrupts it uh, would be considered a stroke that can, you know, we'll talk about a number of causes, but uh, at its simplest form, it's just a lack of oxygen and nutrients to the brain. So when um, you're on a call and uh, you see a patient, what sort of things would indicate to you that a patient is suffering from a stroke? Yeah, and I think that this is at the core of what we need to do as pre-hospital providers is is we need to recognize the signs of a stroke. Um, those may have been recognized already by the family when they call 911 and the dispatchers will try to screen for that. Uh, but you can only do so much over the phone sometimes and a lot of these assessments are, are predicated on an actual um, uh, physical assessment and having eyes on the patient. So we focus on the FAST assessment, which is face, arms, and speech. Uh, and then the T obviously stands for time because we really need to, it's really important to determine the time of onset of the stroke because that um, helps us decide what type of therapies would be available for that patient. And we know that um, really nailing down the the time they were last seen normal is a big deal for stroke care. And uh, even, uh, maybe I'll just put it out there now, even if people wake up with stroke symptoms, so we can't isolate the time that the symptoms would have occurred, we're still currently treating them as fitting within the window of care, which is generally considered to be four and a half hours from the time of symptom onset. So I think breaking down the, the face, arms, and speech and looking for those abnormalities is the, is the first key for, uh, for paramedics when they get on scene. I think we typically break it down into ischemic and hemorrhagic. Um, what's, what, what are some of the presentations or the typical features that you would see in an ischemic stroke? I think the first thing to highlight is probably um, making the determination of ischemic versus a hemorrhagic stroke isn't really for the pre-hospital environment. And I think it's really important that people keep that in mind, that we can't decide whether somebody's bleeding in the brain or whether they're having an ischemic stroke where there's just a blockage of an artery. We can't make that determination, Yeah, even though some things might be more common in certain types of stroke. There's just no way you can make that determination. And I think that just needs to be put out there. About uh, 85 to 90% of strokes are ischemic uh, in that area. So that's sort of what we focus on when it comes to stroke care. And when we talk about, as we'll get into talking about our different types of assessment, I think that's what we should uh, focus on. Um, if we, if it turns out that somebody does have a hemorrhagic stroke, well, then we need to, um, they still need to go to the hospital, have the appropriate imaging, and then be, be dealt with by, by the neuro department. 
And so let's talk a little bit about pathophysiology and this and the FAST van assessment. So um, until about what a year or two ago, we were using the FAST assessment, and yeah. then the FAST van assessment started coming out uh, as a way of identifying these major vessel occlusions. Is that right? Can you talk a little bit about the van assessment? The van assessment is what we use to help us determine if the ischemic stroke somebody is having comes from a really big clot closer down to the bigger vessels in the brain. The whole idea is if you think of it like a tree branch uh, or a tree, you know, a tree with branches, twigs, that sort of thing, you can have a fast positive stroke by just having a small clot that's either gotten there, you know, as an embolus, uh, you know, and traveled there or formed in the, in the artery itself. You can have that occur in a small branch and you can produce the symptoms like face, arms, and speech symptoms. Um, so those symptoms will exist no matter where the clot is. It can be at the very end of the tree, so to speak, at the end of the circulation. But if you occlude something down in the trunk of the tree, like at the very beginning of the middle cerebral artery, you will, of course, still see those face, arms, and speech signs because those are downstream. But now you'll also see other downstream signs, which will be things like vision disturbances, gaze deviations, aphasia where people just, their language centers aren't processing, uh, or neglect where they're generally ignoring one side of their body and, and unable to uh, take into account one side of the body, which, you know, interestingly is usually the left side. That is interesting, the left side. So the van is to help identify a bigger area, a more global area of um, loss of yeah, that's how I look at it. I look at it as fast as a potentially smaller stroke, whereas Van is suggesting that it could be a larger clot. And that's why, um, as we'll get into, we start to talk about bypassing to larger centers for different therapy. So you talked about the fast screen, which is face, arm, speech, time, and the Van, which is vision, aphasia, and neglect. Could you dive a little bit deeper into what um, sort of things we'll see in patients who are suffering from aphasia versus maybe something like slurred speech? Yeah, that's a great question because it's really important to make that determination because if we just say any speech disturbance is aphasia, then we'll actually be missing the mark a little bit and we'd be at risk of saying that somebody is uh, van positive when really they're just fast positive and we're going to make transport decisions based on that and and the protocols are in in place for a reason which we can talk a, a bit more about but when we get into the aphasia and the slurred speech slurred speech is um sounds funny sounds like somebody's drunk maybe you know it sounds like people are pronouncing a, a word uh, in a very odd manner, it's hard to understand. But the key is that that's a that's a muscular problem. That's the muscles not being able to produce the language because you have the stroke is affecting the muscles of the face. But they're still thinking of that word. They're still trying to say that word, whether it's pencil or coffee or whatever. With aphasia, what we have is somebody who's completely unable to actually produce that language in the first place. So when they're asked to name something, they might say something completely opposite. You know, I'm microphone and they might say pencil or something because the the language centers of the brain is one of those other downstream areas that's affected with that large vessel occlusion and so that's a key that we're affecting not just one but two areas of the brain and that's why we think it might be a bigger clot when you take that back to the physiology. Kevin do you have a good approach to doing a van assessment or is there somewhere that we can find a good approach to doing a van assessment on patients? I think the reason van was chosen over some other tools is because it's fairly simple to remember. You know, vision, aphasia, neglect, van, it, it doesn't need to be a long um, 
a prolonged assessment, it can be done fairly quickly, you know, really. I mean, the vision is just the ability of somebody to cross midline with their vision. If they just can't look over across midline to the left or right, no matter what you do, they can't move their eyes past that mid, past that center line, that's a vision disturbance, enough said. And you only need one sign to be positive for van, right? You don't need all three. So as soon as you see somebody who can't move their eyes past midline and, they, and they're having the fast symptoms, which has, of course, led you to do the van assessment, that's it. They're van positive. You're done. The aphasia, same thing. If if their eyes are okay, but you start uh, assessing their ability to speak and they're just throwing out nonsense words, you can't figure out what's going on, they can't name a simple object, they're aphasic. You're done. And neglect arguably can be a little more difficult. Um, but in the cases that we're looking for, people are pretty much ignoring one side of their body. And we tell you to touch one side of the body, touch the other side of the body, and then touch both together when assessing for neglect. And the reason is, is because you have to be, have sensation on both sides in order to be able to test for neglect. That's more subtle neglect, um, more profound neglect you might see is it just might be totally obvious because they will be ignoring one side of your body. And one of the, one of the cases that's, that often gets mentioned is that a patient was actually terrified in the back of the ambulance because they thought they were alone. They said one of the scariest things was the ride in the ambulance because there was nobody in the back with them because they had complete left-sided neglect and had no idea that there was a paramedic sitting right beside them the whole way. Hopefully that was not the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hopefully. Some clarification. So you have a patient uh, and you do a fast assessment, it's positive. Um, then you do your van assessment and you notice that they have a deviated gaze to the left. And this is positive, that's positive for van and you should continue on to the stroke bypass protocol, is that right? You yeah, just need one symptom? That's right. Just one symptom will put you on that trajectory. You can, uh, depending on where you are in the province, you'll have different stroke guidelines. I mean, here on the South Island, we have a pretty, um, pretty solid one that's been quite successful in diverting people that, that might potentially need uh, the advanced treatment uh, that comes from having, you know, the van assessment and, and what we're presuming is going on there with the physiology. So um, you'd have to be familiar with what's going on locally at the station level and for your hospital and understand whether that's a primary um, stroke center that you're traveling to or whether it isn't. And a lot of that is really predicated on the availability of CT scans and the, the availability of not just um, being able to do a CT scan, but also being able to do a uh, CT scan with contrast, or you'll hear the term CTA or CT angio, where they actually inject the contrast into into the patient's veins uh, and it and they can actually picture the arteries uh, of the head and try to localize uh, where the problem might be so that's available in some areas not available in others and that's that's where some of the difficulty comes in in figuring out stroke bypass and uh, what we're going to do are we using time of onset and if so kind of what hours are we looking at as a kind of our latest windows when we're considering a hot stroke yeah, that's a good question. We're we're looking at six hours is what we're looking at for to make our determination. And the reason is is four and a half hours is commonly considered the from time of symptom onset to treatment. That's the time that you need to give TPA to give the clot busting drug to actually try and attack those those smaller clots in the brain that are producing the symptoms. Six hours is chosen because six hours is the time for the endovascular thrombectomy and that's the time where they see benefit of doing that uh, doing that procedure in some patients uh, depending on what's going on they can actually push it out to 24 hours 
but there's some very specific criteria based on the imaging that they do to decide whether patients can do uh, are, are eligible for EVT or endovascular thrombectomy from the six hour to 24 hour window. So that's something that'll be decided by the neurologist and consultation with the radiologist and whatnot, um, sort of after we've delivered them to the hospital. So that should be our focus, recognition, quick transport, minimize scene time, and even the Canadian uh, guidelines and stroke recommendations are a scene time of less than 20 minutes. So I, I think we should be able to hit those uh, pretty quickly and do the rest of what we need to do en route. 20 minutes scene time seems reasonable. Mm -hmm. And then we talked about embolectomy and that kind of being, is that kind of the reason why we're doing van assessments now? We talked about the van assessment identifying these major vessel occlusions. Uh, is that so that the hospital has a chance to do embolectomy? Yeah, absolutely. When we talk about the EVT procedure, um, that's, that's what we're getting at with the van assessment. Because when we have the van, we talked about um, that that probably suggests we have a bigger downstream clot, something that's sitting in the trunk of the tree. You have a big giant clot sitting there. The problem with the big giant clot, well, aside from the fact that you're having a giant stroke, is the fact that TPA doesn't really work as well on those, from my understanding. And so this is why the EVT procedure is an actual mechanical procedure, and they go in and actually get that clot out of there, and they'll actually grab that clot, stick a little bit of, for lack of a better word, like medical chicken wire into the middle of the clot. They'll let it form around it and then they can pull that clot right out. And from what I understand, the, the transition of these patients can be just amazing from somebody with full-blown symptoms and they pull that clot out and reperfuse the brain and these people will be wanting to go home the same day. And that is, you know, it's really, it's, it's fascinating to think about it because this is the difference between somebody potentially in a wheelchair in a nursing home for the rest of their life versus going home the next day with a little bit of aspirin or Plavix and mowing the lawn. And I think that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is pretty amazing what they can do. Um, let's talk a little bit about treatment in the pre-hospital setting. You have a patient you've identified as positive for FAST, positive for VAN. What can paramedics do in the field to help that patient? Well, I've said it before, so I think I said I'd mention it a number of times. And the first thing we need to do, one of the first things, is you really need to rule out hypoglycemia. Um, that can be a big stroke mimic. People can present with very similar signs. And it's really important, um, well, first of all, to correct hypoglycemia because that means the brain is starved for nutrients. So we need to do something about that, and we can. We can administer the therapy for that in the field. And... Um, the second thing is, is it's just embarrassing to transport somebody to a to a stroke center and phone uh, and say that you are bringing in a stroke when their blood glucose is one. So I would strongly recommend that everybody check a glucose on a on a stroke patient. But once that's done, um, the other we can uh, maybe jump ahead and talk about stroke mimics if that's okay. That'd be great. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think aside from hypoglycemia is the big one. I think we also need to uh, be con considerate of people with uh, pre-existing conditions, maybe seizure disorders. You know, a seizure could potentially, people who are post-dictal especially, can present with odd neuroscience that might be mistaken for a stroke. Um, the difference being is that those will usually relent, you know, as, as time goes by. Those will kind of fix themselves and people will start to uh, act more normally as the post-dictal phase kind of wears off. Um, alcohol and drugs, of course, can impair your ability to do a fast ban in the first place. People might present with signs that sort of seem similar to, um, to stroke signs, but it may be a consequence of, of the alcohol or drugs. That being said, 
people who are inebriated can certainly have a stroke. So if they're compliant with the exam, if they if you can get them to do the exam, hold their arms up for a good arm assessment, if you can assess their their face and their speech, and they seem they seem just not quite right for you, I'd err on the side of the patient and uh, and treat them as if they're having an acute stroke. Um, so treatment-wise, once we've decided that somebody is having a stroke, either fast or fast van, once we're transporting, regardless of where we're going, a few things should probably be um, the same. Um, we need to start an IV on them. Uh, if you don't get it, I wouldn't sweat it. It's not like, you, but the whole idea is that we're going to save time on arrival at the hospital because they will need to inject the contrast into the IV. And so a larger bore IV above the wrist on the right side, if you can get it, but the left is okay if you can't, uh, will help speed up the process at the hospital because they don't have to go fishing around for an IV. They can take them into CT. They already have a way to give that contrast because you've started the IV. So that just speeds everything along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think information is another key thing that we bring. Uh, pre-notification to the hospital of the stroke, the time of onset, uh, health number, a PHN, uh, and a patient name, and as much detail as you can really pass on is really helpful because that allows the hospital to start pulling their medication records. They can check to see if they're perhaps on uh, anticoagulant therapy, which is can be really important, and they can be really prepped for that patient when they get there and know a lot about them ahead of time uh, in terms of what they're diving into rather than having to start all that when you arrive. So if you can pre-notify with a time of arrival, uh, the, you know, a time you'll be there, a time of onset, and a uh, even a contact number or bring the family member along in case the physicians or the stroke team needs to confirm some stuff with the patient, anything from time of onset to medications to even wishes for the patient if things aren't going so well is important. Um, last thing I'd mention on route, aside from your normal ABCs, of course, and protecting, you know, doing what you, what you need to do uh, in the course of a normal call is it's not a bad idea to lay them supine if you're traveling uh, for a while to the hospital. The reason is, is there's some um, there's some thought that laying them supine actually helps promote blood flow into the brain, just because you know you're not having to force that blood up. There's no, you're not fighting gravity, so you can actually improve blood flow to the brain, and potentially help perfuse those maybe not past the clot itself, but certainly to the collateral areas where where some oxygenated blood and some nutrients might still be getting to that area. So. If you can get away with it, if there's no reason not to lay them supine, then uh, by all means, I would uh, I would be doing that. The last point I would make is that if you're not comfortable with any of this, if there's airway compromise or instability, blood pressure issues, hypotensive or profound hypertension, or you know you're not comfortable with the stability of the patient, then you should probably just go to the closest hospital, get some help, and that that there just might be other things that just have to be dealt with first. Or if it's within your area, call for an ACP intercept or CCP intercept and uh, carry on to the stroke center, but by all means ask for help. So that's kind of how I'd summarize the care at that point. Awesome. That's a really great summary of uh, things that we should be considering in the pre-hospital environment for these stroke patients. So what... What are we trying to do when we're laying a patient supine who's having a stroke? And, and what sort of cases might we consider sitting them up or raising the head of the bed? Yeah, that's a good question. And it comes down to uh, back to the ischemic versus hemorrhagic. And then we can also just sort of tie in the difference between stroke care and perhaps TBI management when we're talking about uh, traumatic brain injury. 
In laying the head of the bed down, what we're trying to do is we're trying to perfuse the areas that are helping to keep the penumbra or basically the sort of just outside of the acute part of the stroke alive with that collateral circulation. So other little arteries that are getting in there and providing a little bit of blood, a little bit of oxygen and nutrients, we're trying to help them do that. Just by laying the head of the bed down, we're maybe improving the blood flow to those areas and helping to reduce that area that's being affected as time goes on from that clot. Of course, you're not going to lay somebody down if you have airway compromise or if you're having to, you know, provide ventilatory support like CPAP or something like that for some reason. You're not necessarily going to just lay everybody down. Um, but in the case of a fast van positive stroke with no reason not to uh, and a clear cut fast van, I'd say lay them down is, is the way to go. Now, it's difficult to contrast that with... Um, the potential for a hemorrhagic stroke uh, to cause perhaps elevated intracranial pressure. Uh, in those cases, and in traumatic brain injury, we usually want the head of the bed elevated to 30 degrees. The reason for that is because we presumably have increased intracranial pressure. And when we sit people up and make sure that, say, a C collar isn't on too tight or there isn't anything obstructing the neck, we really open up the venous drainage of the brain and just by allowing uh, more blood to drain out of the head by using gravity to our, to our benefit, we can actually decrease the intracranial pressure. Sometimes I, I think the numbers I've heard are even up to 10 millimeters, which, which is actually, you know, it doesn't really, the numbers don't matter, but that's a pretty significant change in somebody with, uh, with high intracranial pressure. So it's a great idea in somebody who, is, who does have high intracranial pressure to sit the head of the bed up. In an ischemic stroke, you're not really getting high intracranial pressure. You're getting an ischemic area from a clot, but that's not actually increasing the pressure in the brain. You're having a local problem in, in the cortex of the brain, in the outside part of the brain that's affecting the face, the arms, the speech, or maybe you know even the vision, causing aphasia, or causing neglect. But you're not having a global intracranial pressure problem unless you're talking way downstream or some other complications or potentially from a hemorrhagic stroke you are, but we don't really have any way to determine that. So I think the default should be to lie people supine if possible. But keep in mind that things might change and there is a distinction between TBI or a hemorrhagic stroke, especially if perhaps you're doing a subsequent transfer or something, or if you're participating in a transfer, you might see people with the head of the bed elevated for other reasons. And uh, it, is a, it is a bit of a tough distinction, but from an acute care perspective and dealing with the, in the hyperacute phase of a, of a stroke, supine would be preferred, uh, if at all possible. So I don't know if, I can, if that helps at all, but I thought that's I'd perfect. take a shot. No, that's incredible. Thank you, thank you. What is that beeping? Behind your truck. Classic. It's always something Gord can't plan for. I can't control. <laughs> it's always something, it's always something in the back. Uh, so Kevin, a call comes in for classic stroke-like symptoms. We get there, there's a strong history of someone having been, you know, unable to speak properly and they've got this one-sided weakness and by the time we've gotten there it's resolved what sort of things could this be and how important is it that that person be assessed in hospital yeah that's a great question because we do those quite a bit um what we're worried about of course is that it might be a transient ischemic attack or tia where they've had symptoms that are consistent with fast findings or uh, potentially even van findings maybe, but some sort of neural findings that have resolved when we get there. I think one of the first things I'd advocate for is that people actually take that history seriously. 
because I'd be worried that when people are feeling fine, especially if the patient is adamant that they're better and they don't need to go, that they they might try to uh, stay at home. And I think we really need to advocate for those people to go to the hospital because if you have a TIA, you're at huge risk for having a stroke very soon. And you need you still need urgent imaging, you still need care, you need to be placed uh, perhaps on anticoagulant therapy or aspirin or Plavix, and you need to um, be followed up by neuro as quickly as possible. So people who have TIAs uh, should certainly be taken to the hospital. And if given a choice, take them to the hospital that might have uh, CT capabilities or, or more diagnostic capabilities if you if you have a choice between the, perhaps maybe a local healthcare clinic versus a hospital a little farther away with CT. That should probably be where you're going with those people to make sure they get, they get imaged quicker and taken care of because the last thing you want is to leave them at home and have a full-blown stroke develop while they're sleeping and then they might fall outside of the window when, when you know, it all comes up uh, the next day. And that would be uh, pretty unfortunate. So uh, TIAs, the other thing to mention is if you are perhaps uh, transporting somebody with stroke symptoms that you've identified and you're transporting to the local stroke center, you're bypassing, there's a chance those symptoms will resolve just based on your treatment. There's even be cases of symptoms uh, resolving just by lying them down, like we've talked about with supine positioning. If that happens, don't change what you're doing. The, the person obviously is still super sick. It's great that they reperfused and are, you know, have gotten some oxygen back, which we can assume is what happened if the symptoms go away. But it'll probably just happen again. So just carry on with, with, what's, uh, with what's going on. Um, but definitely TIA patients have to go to the hospital. Kevin, tell us about uh, our paramedics in the rural sites, what they should do when they have a patient with these stroke symptoms and what hospital choices they should make. Yeah, and that's a great question because, you know, a lot of the time the focus comes down to an urban area where you kind of get to make these decisions, go to an advanced stroke center where you have the potential for endovascular thrombectomy. But that might not be true in the north or the Kootenays or other parts of the island or even the even the south coast in some areas. So it's really important still, even if you really only have one transport option to your local hospital, you still need to be aware of a fast and a van assessment. And while that won't change your destination decision, it'll change your notification. And as the knowledge of fast and van improves throughout the province and circulates and more and more stroke protocols are brought into place, eventually I think there might start to be bigger decisions made on that initial determination. So I think it's really important that we're still doing and documenting a fast van assessment uh, because it is going to have an impact on patients. And even if um, a protocol comes into place that can save an hour of time, maybe that's the hour that makes the difference between getting them inside of a window and not for treatment. And uh, that can have a huge implication of, uh, for the rest of that patient's life. So you can't, you can't just, uh, it's not good enough in a way to say, you know, I only transport to one place, so why do I need to know this? I think it, you really need to, uh, it's a professional responsibility to identify strokes and advocate for your patient. Great point. There's been a lot of changes in the last couple of years with what we've done with stroke. What's coming down the pipes next? I know that on the South Island, there's been a very successful implementation of stroke bypass um, for the towns of Duncan, Ladysmith and Shimanus, uh, sort of South Nanaimo, um, where people who are van positive are being directed right to Victoria General uh, as a primary center uh, if they're van positive as, you know, because we're presuming they have a large vessel occlusion because they're showing either vision, aphasia or neglect. And so we're bringing them all the way to Victoria for potential 
endovascular thrown back to me as opposed to just going to the closest hospital like Duncan, uh, which is still valid if people are just fast positive. Um, if they're fast positive and van negative, the quick CT and quick TPA is the way to go. And so that's why we make those determinations and, and why, like to the last point, talking about um, knowing your fast van, it's so important to get this stuff right as we start to make transport decisions based on that. Around the rest of the province, what we're going to get is um, we're going to keep getting the evolution of stroke bypass protocols. I think as new places come online, I know that Kelowna has recently started doing EVT procedures. So I think we'll start to see an evolution of bypass protocols in the Okanagan. I think the lower mainland will continue to uh, develop their stroke protocols as, as information comes in and uh, and we'll start to see people being diverted from maybe farther and farther away, uh, depending on what the what the research shows and the literature shows in terms of what's best for patients. When you get into the north, uh, you get into the smaller communities, it is harder. I get it. It's harder to, um, if you only have one place to transport to, it might even be frustrating because that place doesn't have CT. I think that what we'll see is an evolution of stroke care, um, maybe as paramedics improve their sensitivity of, of their exams and the specificity of them. I think that as we see um, perhaps treatment in hospital um, get better and better, things like the frontier trial might play a role as we start to administer things that might actually help in the middle of the stroke where you can give a drug that might help protect some of the, some of the at-risk brain tissue. So we might even go so far as seeing um, stroke protocols come into place with more air resources dedicated to quick evacuation of patients from towns that don't have CT or those capabilities. So, you know, where are we going? Hopefully really good places. Um, you know, I don't have all the answers and like everywhere else in healthcare, we're resource tapped a lot of the time. So um, all we can do is advocate for those patients as best we can and hope that everything uh, catches up in terms of getting these people where they need to go. Um, what else is coming? Uh, I know that on Salt Spring Island, we're starting hopefully very soon where we'll have a uh, crew initiated stroke launch protocol where patients won't even be transferred to Lady Minto Hospital if they're stable enough for that. If a crew recognizes fast or van uh, findings, these patients will be primarily airlifted to uh, Victoria General for EVT uh, or even just TPA. But uh, the fact is Lady Minto Hospital doesn't have CT capability. So you know, the benefit of going there and somebody who just requires stroke care is, is limited unless, of course, they have, you know, signs of instability. I mean, they just need to go to the hospital. So maybe that'll provide a bit of a model as we go forward in terms of what we can do. And we'll look at the success or failure of that program as we go forward and see what else we can do to help people out. Yeah, exciting things coming down for sure. Thanks so much, Kevin, for joining us today. That's been incredibly insightful and uh, informative on stroke and really great to know kind of where we're at in terms of current best practices and, and where we're going in the future. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it's been a blast to be here. Thanks very much. That's been another episode of Medic Minutes brought to you by the British Columbia Emergency Health Services. I'm Kayla Richardson. Thank you to Gord Meineker and Kevin Lambert for today's episode on stroke care. We'll catch you next time. Sec. I was like, you don't, you need to cut a hole in this guy's neck right now. Oh no. He did it though, yeah. He Not did like it. it, yeah.